This is Spotlight, a charity and security network podcast. A deep dive into how U.S. national security measures impact nonprofit organizations around the world. Welcome to Spotlight. I am your host, Zach Tyler. On the last episode, I interviewed the Charity and Security Network's founder, Kate Ganane. She explained the impact U.S. counterterrorism laws often have on nonprofits and how the Charity and Security Network advocates for change to support these nonprofit operations around the world. In this week's episode, I interviewed Andrea Hall, the policy counsel of the Charity and Security Network, who focuses her work on the financial access issues that nonprofits face while working overseas. She explained to me her work at the nexus of national security and nonprofit rights and the challenges she has faced along the way. So as policy counsel, I monitor movement in Congress, the executive branch agencies, particularly U.S. Treasury, for developments related to our specific issues, and I advocate on behalf of our members. I'm also the lead on our financial access and deplatforming work. That's sort of in a nutshell, um, my job description, I guess. So in your view, what are the biggest financial access challenges facing nonprofits and how does it affect their operations? These organizations do face a number of financial access hurdles, including account closures, refusals to open accounts, and loss of online donation platforms and services. But right now, the top challenge is the inability to send program funds overseas in a timely manner. These are wired transfers that frequently bounce back multiple times before they're successfully sent to their intended recipient. And these delays can last weeks or even months. This has a profound impact on time-sensitive programming, particularly in the humanitarian aid arena. For example, a winterization program in Afghanistan never happened because by the time the funds were sent, winter was over and the expectation is that lives were lost. So it really does have a meaningful and profound impact on the way humanitarian agencies work. Another organization told me that the bank refused to send the money until she could produce the receipts. Well, that was fine. They were able to get a grace period from their partners on the ground for the one project. But as she said, we can't go around paying our partners in arrears. We have to pay up front. So it's a very complex problem. And it's a, it's a sticky one that's been around for a while. And it, it, it's time, overdue time for these eight organizations to, to see some relief in this arena. Right. So it's part of the many, it, I guess these are just more bureaucratic hoops that organizations have to jump through in order to have their operations funded. And see, unfortunately, it's even more than bureaucratic hoops because what is happening on the financial institution side, it's what is now being referred to as overcompliance, that banks and other financial institutions are so concerned about the, the enormous fines that they've seen imposed by U.S. Treasury agencies on financial institutions for violations of sanctions or violations of counterterrorism financing regulations that they just shy away completely. So in the general risk-benefit calculation, do I want to send this payment to an aid organization on the ground that I don't know a lot about? Working with refugees from Syria, some of whom might have been former ISIS fighters. Gee, it seems like, you know, from the bank's perspective, maybe that's just something to stay away from. And our position is that these are risks that can be managed. The humanitarian aid organizations truly are experts in identifying and mitigating these risks. They've been dealing with these programs for a very, very long time. 
And it goes without saying that these groups don't want their own funds or their donor funds to fall into the wrong hands. So they're taking all the precautions necessary to make sure that the money reaches its intended beneficiaries. And so the bank should look at the measures that the, that the nonprofits are, are putting in place to mitigate risk and accept that there will never be zero risk in this arena. There will always be the unknown. But the nonprofit community has done a really, really good job of mitigating those risks down to a, a very small percentage. Why do you believe that banks view nonprofits as particularly risky, even though you mentioned that they have highly professionalized risk mitigation strategies and governance? Is there any reason that you can see that they would put nonprofits under uh, the microscope? I think that to an extent, nonprofits make up a very small share of banks' business. They're much more used to dealing with corporations and private businesses. And we have seen this in examples such as a nonprofit walks into a bank to open an account and the bank manager hands them a form for a small business. And so where there's a line to say, who are your customers? Who are you, who's your owner? Those don't apply uh, to the nonprofit model. And so when little things like that go awry and the nonprofit tries to explain to the bank manager, well, we don't have customers, we don't have an owner, we have beneficiaries, we have a board of directors, the bank gets a little thrown off kilter. They don't know how to handle it. They don't have, it's a a square peg that they don't have a square hole for sometimes. And I think a lot of it comes down to communication. And that's something that we really emphasize in a guidance document we developed a year ago as part of the Consortium for Financial Access. We work with banks and ACAMS, the Association of Certified Anti-Money Laundering Specialists. It was an outgrowth of the World Bank ACAMS multi-stakeholder dialogue on financial access for nonprofits. And we came together to develop a guidance document that Treasury has yet to to produce on its own. And this guidance document has sections for nonprofits, for banks, and for governments, for all of these stakeholders to better understand the way each work and to better accommodate each other in their dealings um, and relationships. So you you mentioned earlier deplatforming. Is that a similar issue to bank de-risking? That's an excellent question, Zach, and the answer is yes and no. So in many cases, and uh, the deplatforming happens for the exact same reasons that bank de-risking happens. It's overcompliance, a low-risk appetite on the part of a financial service company, or in this case, a an online platform company that provides online donation services for nonprofits. Other reasons that contribute to both bank de-risking and deplatforming are false positive hits in commercial screening programs that these companies use. However, there's a more recent phenomenon here with deplatforming coming as the result of politically motivated attacks. These are attempts to shut down the accounts of nonprofits with whom the attacker disagrees politically. And we have seen this most commonly in the Israel-Palestine context, although we have seen a few cases in other conflict zones. You know, what gets me is that nonprofits have their charitable mission. And you would imagine that for a lot of banks and financial institutions and you know, financial services like PayPal or any any of these major um, financial services that we can think of, you would imagine that supporting nonprofits working in conflict zones would be 
something that they would want to support as part of their corporate social responsibility plan. Do nonprofits not fit into those corporate social responsibility plans for financial institutions? Or what do you see there? That is an excellent question. And I have two responses. One is that in the deplatforming area, we have been fortunate to partner with a nonprofit organization called Heartland Initiative, which works on sort of this human rights advocacy in for businesses by undertaking shareholder initiatives and doing outreach around shareholders. So as we move forward within the deplatforming context, those partners at Heartland Initiative, that's really the business and human rights angle is really their expertise. And we are hoping to sort of proceed with, rather than the social responsibility, more so focusing on the business and human rights angle and looking at it as a human rights issue because the groups that are being deplatformed are delivering humanitarian aid, are doing human rights work in these conflict zones. The second answer actually popped up yesterday. I uh, listened in on a webinar some financial institutions and other corporations that are stepping up to the plate to increase funding to nonprofits um, in their response to the COVID crisis. And what came out of the question and answer session was that although some of these financial institutions that were actually uh, presenters on this webinar stated that they want to help the COVID response, they're not willing, even in the face of this, this huge global crisis, they're not willing to shift their their risk appetite at all. Rather, what they've done over a period of years or even decades is chosen partners that they feel extraordinarily safe working with. And so the charitable arms of the financial institution are partnering with, for example, UN agencies or the Red Cross, which operates under a specific charter that makes it a little bit different than other humanitarian aid organizations. And so they feel comfortable continuing to carry out the financial model, the risk appetite that they have been using that has deplatformed or has de-risked many of our members, the nonprofits working in this sphere, while continuing to tout their charitable work that they do with a very, very, very limited number of partners that they apparently will not, at least in the foreseeable future, expand upon. So in their eyes, it's it's really a business decision. It's not good business for them to support a lesser known per, with a NGO with the perceived higher risk. Is that how you see their decision making? Um, it is, and again, it goes back to you know the fear of penalties. So if they can partner with say, a UN agency, they feel like there's just a lot more security in that. That they feel like even though some of the groups that are being de-risked may be what we would consider household names, some really big nonprofit organizations based here in the U.S. or in in Europe. Again, going with a U.N. agency, just as an example, or with the Red Cross to them, in their mind at least appears to be a safer bet. You work extensively on this issue. How can we fix the problem and ensure that nonprofits working in conflict zones are supported and trusted by financial institutions? What are the sort of practical next steps or work that we can be doing to, to help the nonprofit sector? Yeah, so as I mentioned before, this is a really sticky problem. And what we've learned over the past few years is there is no single or silver bullet solution. So at Charity Security Network, we have taken a multi-pronged approach that will chip away at the problem 
This has included working to get the bank examination manual updated. Our advocacy in Congress is one of the biggest pieces, both working to get financial access language included in bills that are working their way through Congress, as well as preventing any legislation that could make the problem worse. We also work with various stakeholders, including banks. As I mentioned last year, we put out the guidance document under the banner of the Consortium on Financial Access, and that will be periodically updated where we think of it as a living document and so that in years to come, it will still be relevant. We, are, we continue to work with U.S. Treasury and their outreach meet, meetings that they have with the nonprofit sector, as well as any sort of communication or advocacy that we can do between those meetings to help our members. Are you, I have to ask, are you optimistic looking at the future of financial access? I feel like in this Congress, even though we are looking at the waning days of the 116th Congress, it will end on December 31st of this year, there is a reasonably good chance of getting some good language. Both the House Financial Services Committee and the Senate Banking Committee are working on some language around de-risking and trying to get that inserted into the NDAA, which is the National Defense Authorization Act. For the non-wonky listeners, that people outside the Beltway, that is the annual spending bill. It's considered must-pass legislation. It is usually the first spending bill that gets taken care of by Congress as the annual budget process for the federal government goes through its cycle. So a lot of smaller bills hitch a ride on the NDAA. And luckily for us, the um, two committees that I mentioned, both in the House and the Senate, have seen an opportunity to include some de-risking language within the NDAA. Hopefully, it will pass through the various committees that it has to go through before the final bill is signed. But I am optimistic on that front. On the bank examination manual, I'm also optimistic that our changes that we submitted three years ago to the regulators, that was a joint effort between banks and nonprofits, will eventually be adopted in some form. The timeline is what concerns me. We have uh, repeatedly gone back to the FFIEC regulators about the manual, and they don't seem to be in any hurry to update the specific language about nonprofits within the manual. So we are continuing to press to get that language updated sooner rather than later. Do they not see it as a, as a pressing issue? I think that there are many pressing issues in a bank examination manual that is almost a decade old. So they're, they're getting requests from a lot of different sectors and a lot of different stakeholders to update various sections. And so it's understandable that there are other pressing needs as well. Of course, we in the nonprofit sector, of course, view ours as the most important. I would certainly argue that humanitarian need should be the most pressing issue, that there are communities overseas that are literally starving, literally doing without education, literally suffering in greater numbers than we can even sometimes wrap our heads around based on our, you know, our lifestyle and our, our way of doing things here in the U.S. And that those, those conflict zones, those areas of need overseas, ultimately the situations impact uh, U.S. foreign policy. When there are communities that are vulnerable, because they have need, they're also vulnerable to terrorist recruitment, for example. So it really is in the U.S. best interest to facilitate international funds transfers intended for humanitarian aid. What are some of the biggest challenges then that you face with policy and with policy change regarding financial access? I feel like at this point, our bigger hurdles are at the agency level. I feel like we have established really good relationships on the Hill 
and that we're able to get people to answer our phone calls, to answer our emails, while the committee staff may be open to listening to and incorporating some of our suggestions that may not always be true when the full House or the full Senate has to vote on language. You know, we're a really small organization, and so we try to work in partnership with other organizations so that when we hit up offices on the Hill, we can affect um, greater change than we would just if it was two or three people trying to do the work. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Spotlight, and I hope you enjoyed the discussion I had with Andrea. We will continue our series of interviews with nonprofit and national security experts next episode when I interview Tracy Darner, the Director of Financial Integrity and Inclusion at the Global Center on Cooperative Security. In the meantime, please share this episode with your friends and colleagues, and do not forget to subscribe. We look forward to you tuning in next time.